Friends, would you join me in praying one more time as we go to God and his word? Father God, our hearts are hungry for the true bread that satisfies, the true water that causes us to not thirst anymore. These things are only found in your son, Jesus. And so I pray that as we come to your word, that you would feed us with the true bread of Christ and satisfy our thirst with the living water that flows from Christ alone. Would you help us in this large passage in Ecclesiastes? See what you want us to see, to learn the lesson that the preacher is teaching us and to learn where the good life can truly be found. Would you help us, we pray, by your Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen, friends. The title of this morning's sermon is Looking for the Good Life Under the Sun. This quest for the good life is a common one that we encounter every day. I'm sure many of you have either said yourself or maybe told your kids, you've got to work hard in school, you've got to pay attention you got to be able to get good grades so you can do well and go to a good college and get a good job and have a good life, right? Have the house that you need, be able to support your family, be able to live peaceably on this earth. We're all striving for a good life. And many of us later in life might fear, have we missed it? Have we made decisions or chosen paths in life that maybe made our life less than good? Maybe we've made decisions that cause things around us to crumble. And as a result of those decisions, we fear that life is irrecoverably damaged. We can't do anything about it. Or maybe we fear that the life we have that is pretty good might one day be lost by us doing the wrong thing, making the wrong choice. Our culture is obsessed with living the good life and how to live the good life as evidenced by all kinds of magazine articles, blog posts, videos, touting the secret to success in one way or another. We're all searching for something called the good life, some meaningful life that is pleasurable, that is enjoyable, that leads to some kind of gain. This quest is not new. The preacher here in Ecclesiastes is trying to tackle it in our text this morning. He's continuing this question that he started off with in chapter 1, verse 3, right? What, what does man gain? Chapter 3, what does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? Excuse me, that's verse 3. He's continuing to ask this question as he searches for the good life. He's searching, he says, in verse 13, applying his heart to seek and search out by wisdom all that is done under heaven. He wants to examine the things that we do and he wants to examine them for a particular purpose. Chapter 2, verse 3, he says he wants to see what is good for a man to do. What is good for a man to do, the children of man to do under heaven during the few days of their life. He's looking for this good life. We see in verse 12... This preacher has been king over Israel and Jerusalem. And we talked previously when we started this study of Ecclesiastes, how this preacher 
is possibly Solomon at the end of a long life, King Solomon, or wants us to think of him like King Solomon. And if there was ever a king in Israel who could seek and search out all that is done and find the good life, it was Solomon. Solomon, we read about in 1 Kings chapter 4 and in chapter 10, how he had amassed more wealth than any of the kings of the earth. How he had become more wise than any of the kings of the earth. And how all the kings of the earth flocked to him. To hear his wisdom. To see the treasures that he had gathered. He is uniquely fitted for this search. He's skeptical though about this search. Right? Look, look at verse four, uh, 13. Excuse me. What he says. At the end of verse 13, it is an unhappy business that God has given the children of man to be busy with. He already knows, like we saw last time, that nothing changes, nothing is remembered, nothing is new. And this is an unhappy business that God has given us. It makes us in creation weary. And so he knows this and he says, I've seen everything that is done under the sun and behold, all is vanity and is striving after wind. And then he recites this little proverb. What is crooked cannot be made straight. What is lacking cannot be counted. In other words, everything we look out and see in creation that is broken cannot be straightened, cannot be fixed. All the things we see that are missing, that don't make sense, can't be counted or made sense of, can't be taken into account as we try to understand what does the good life look like under the sun. But Solomon is uniquely fitted to try to tackle this question. If anybody can make straight what is crooked, surely it's King Solomon. If anybody can count what is lacking or make up even for what is lacking, certainly it's King Solomon with all of his riches of both wealth and wisdom. And so the preacher sets out on this quest to test these various paths to see if what they lead to is actually the good life. And he invites us to join him on this journey. He invites us to join him in answering the question, how can we make a good life in the ruins of Eden? See, this question has been asked ever since Adam and Eve rebelled against God and got exiled from the garden. How now, living in the ruins of Eden, after having burned the house down, do we make a good life out of what's left? And King Solomon invites us to join him on this quest to ask this question. He's going to explore two paths we'll see in our text today. Two particular paths that represent all of the ways we try to seek and find the good life under the sun. He's going to talk first about wisdom and knowledge. We ask, can the good life be found by knowing enough or knowing the right things? And then he's going to explore the path of pleasure and work. Can the good life be found by having enough or having the right things? Both of these answers are going to turn up short, but he still wants us to take the journey with him to see why and to see what the solution is. So that's where we're going this morning. We're going to start off in chapter 1, verse 16, as the preacher looks at Knowing as a solution to a good life. Here's what he says in verse 16. I said in my heart, I have acquired great wisdom. 
surpassing all who were over Jerusalem before me. And my heart has had great experience of wisdom and knowledge. And I applied my heart to know wisdom and to know madness and folly. I perceive that this also is but a striving after wind. For in much wisdom is much vexation. And he who increases knowledge increases sorrow. The preacher is trying to explore this question. Can we create the good life if we know enough? We, as human beings, tend to think we can. We tend to think that if I know enough, I can master reality and shape it to my will. We try to think in this way, as we think about the good life, that it can be found if we know the exact right thing to do or say in every situation. If you always made every single choice rightly, would you have the good life? I mean that rightly, not in a perspective of right standing with God, but I mean that rightly in terms of the wise and the foolish choice. This preacher is trying to discern the difference between wisdom and folly. What is wise to choose in this particular circumstance? What will lead to flourishing? What will lead to happiness and security? We think that if we know the secret to success, that success then is guaranteed because we are masters of our reality. We think that if we know how the pieces of the puzzle of life fit together, we'll be able to assemble it rightly. This is treating all of reality like if I just knew what to do, it would go well. Or if I just understood why it didn't go well, I won't make the same mistake next time. We live in a society that has unbridled optimism in our ability to know and understand by wisdom, all of reality, and therefore to master it and to shape it to our will. And so we think this might work. But the preacher says, no, this doesn't work. It leads to vexation and sorrow, he says in verse 18. Why? Why does it lead to vexation and sorrow to try to know more and understand more? You'd think that would help. The problem with that is that all of reality is crooked. As the preacher says, what is crooked cannot be made straight. What is lacking cannot be counted. The more you know, the more you learn, the more you understand, the more you know what you don't know. The more you know how much left there is to learn. The more you understand how little you actually understand, right? The problem with wisdom and knowledge as a route to the good life is that it allows us to see what is broken. But it does not allow us to fix what is broken. We cannot use our wisdom and understanding and knowledge to master reality in a way that fixes the fundamental crookedness of it. That's what the preacher is coming up against. Now you might be thinking, well, in comparison to today, the preacher was like an uneducated hillbilly. Right? Like, like today we have so much more knowledge. We understand things like how the human genome works. We understand things like how the universe is shaped. We feel like we can master so much more of reality. In fact, we live in a time when, according to IBM, knowledge doubles every 12 hours. Knowledge being measured by digital data. Wouldn't that make us more capable now to pursue this path to the good life? We keep learning things. We keep understanding things. 
The problem with that is what we've created is a puzzle out of life that every time we find a piece that fits, the puzzle expands exponentially and gets larger and larger. Can you imagine sitting down to do a hundred piece puzzle and you put one piece in place and now it's a thousand piece puzzle and you put another piece in place and now it's a 10,000 piece puzzle that would lead to vexation and sorrow and frustration. And you would push the puzzle aside and say, it's all hevel. Right? I can't do it. That's the reality of what we're dealing with because as knowledge is doubling every 12 hours, the half-life of knowledge is shrinking. What that means is the time that knowledge is useful for us is less and less. Those of you who didn't grow up as digital natives, think about the devices you've had to learn how to use and how quickly you're learning to use those devices is outdated and you have to learn it again. Right? Every time Apple comes out with another update to iOS, you have to relearn where things go. Because the knowledge is expanding so fast, but the usefulness of the knowledge is becoming outdated so quickly. We still cannot master reality by knowing enough. We cannot make straight what is crooked. We cannot count what is lacking. Our hopes to master reality are crushed by just the nature of knowledge itself, but they're also crushed by something else that the preacher sees. See, he goes, he goes into wisdom and knowledge, and then he goes into pleasure, and then he reflects some more on wisdom and knowledge, and then reflects some more on pleasure. So if we skip ahead a little bit, we'll see what the ultimate fundamental problem with trying to pursue the good life through mastering reality with our knowledge is. Skip ahead to chapter 2, verse 12. The preacher says again, I turn to consider wisdom and madness and folly. He's going back to this topic and saying, well, what about wisdom? And what he finds, what he finds is that there is more gain in wisdom than in folly. Verse 13 of chapter 2. There is more gain in wisdom of folly. It's better to be wise than foolish. It's better to be knowledgeable than ignorant. There is some gain. It's better to have eyes in your head than be blind, right? But, but he says, I perceived, verse 14, I perceived that the same event happens to all of them. What is this same event? Verse 16, how the wise dies just like the fool. See, wisdom Knowledge, our learning, our mastering reality cannot stop death. Our hopes to find the good life through knowing enough are crushed on the cliffs of death. Because death still comes to us whether we are wise or foolish. Any gain we would have in wisdom, any temporary gain we would have from being wise rather than a fool is erased By death. Because there's no enduring remembrance, the preacher says. It won't last after you die. As I was thinking about this, I was thinking about how scientists must feel who dedicate their life to understanding a particular aspect of our reality. And it's a good endeavor to do science, to think about physics. But we did not understand how quantum mechanics worked until 
Guys like Planck and Einstein discovered and articulated how those things work. And all of the science done for 1,800 years prior to that, after Christ, was missing a vital piece of information. No matter how much they strived and how much they fought to understand and explain reality, they could not count what was lacking. Because they didn't understand how small particles work. How frustrating is that? How much vexation and sorrow comes from knowing that no matter how hard you try, you're never going to get all the pieces together because you will die before you do. And then nobody will remember it. That's what the preacher is saying. You cannot create the good life by mastering reality because you're striving against a crooked world that God has made crooked. The preacher says in Ecclesiastes seven thirteen. He says this, consider the work of God. Who can make straight what he has made crooked? Who can make straight what he has made crooked? The preacher says it is futile and hopeless to strive by your knowing to make straight what God has made crooked. You cannot. And part of the crookedness of creation is the curse that has come on us because of sin. And that curse includes death. And we cannot straighten it. Even if you make all of the perfect decisions in life, you will still die. And that means putting your hope in making all of the perfect decisions in life is not the route to the good life. It's not the route to gain. The preacher wants us to know this path only leads to death and disappointment. So don't even try it. How should we respond to something like that? What do we do when given that level of hopelessness? One option which the preacher explores and most of us take is to take the option of distraction through work and pleasure. In other words, those are deep thoughts. Why are you thinking like that? Why bother? We've got so much to worry about right now. Let's look at what's in front of us. We've got work to do. We've got things to buy. We've got happiness to have. Let's look to that. And so the preacher does. He explores testing his heart with pleasure. Look at chapter 2, verse 1. I said in my heart, come now. I will test you with pleasure. Enjoy yourself. This comes right after his reflection that pursuing the gain through wisdom is vexation and sorrow. He's trying to turn that vexation and sorrow into a little joy. Enjoy yourself. He's wondering, can I create the good life by having enough or having the right things? Can I create the good life if I apply the wisdom that I've been given to building something great? Notice in verse 3, he says that my heart is still guiding me with wisdom. And in verse 9, he says that he kept all of his wisdom while he did these explorations. This is not someone who doesn't know what he's doing. He's using his wisdom and his knowledge and his skill to apply it to make a good life for himself. How's it going to work out? He's trying to create this paradise. Does it work? We see in verses 4 through 8 these various trails that he goes down. I made great works. 
I built houses and planted vineyards for myself. I made myself gardens and parks and planted in them all kinds of fruit trees. I made myself pools from which to water the forests of the growing trees. I bought male and female slaves and had slaves who were born in my house. I also had great possessions of herds and flocks, more than any who had been before me in Jerusalem. I also gathered for myself silver and gold and the treasures of kings and provinces. I got singers, both men and women, and many concubines, the delight of the sons of man. He's going down all these little various off trails to see if there's gain to be found. He's trying to build for himself a great kingdom. And then in that kingdom, he's trying to fill it with various possessions, treasures, things that will bring joy and happiness. He's trying to fill it with beauty and art, gathering these singers around, planting these trees. Not only that, but he's trying to fill it even with illicit pleasures like concubines. These are all different ways that we explore to try to find meaning and satisfaction to try to find the good life, isn't it? If I just built the right house, if I just planted the beautiful garden, if I just were able to have my sexual desires fulfilled, if I just could appreciate this beauty that I see, all of these different paths, he says in verse 10, whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. Whatever our eyes desired. If you could have whatever your eyes desired. Anything you can think of that you could want, you could have. Would it lead to a good life? That's what the preacher is wondering. That's what the preacher wants us to ask. What is he doing here? Think about, think about building houses, planting vineyards, making gardens and parks with fruit trees and pools of water. Thinking about our Bible, does that remind you of anything? The preacher here is trying to craft a secular garden of Eden. Right? He's trying to rebuild for himself the garden. But this garden has no forbidden fruit. Whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from myself. Maybe, just maybe... The good life in the ruins of Eden is rebuilding it ourselves, creating some kind of utopia where we can have whatever we want. Then, then we'll be happy. The preacher is at the peak of human success. He has achieved the American dream. He has everything he could possibly want. Most of us can only dream about something like that. Right? We might think, when I get the right job, when I get the right house, when I build up enough in savings, when I take that vacation, when I can finally retire, then I'm going to meet the good life. When I get the right boat that I can pull my kids behind on, and they will love it, and we'll grill, and we'll go to the lake, and we'll pull them behind it, and they'll be so happy, and that'll be the good life. The preacher is at the peak of that mountain that we climb towards the American dream. And what does he say? What does he see? Verse 11. Then I considered all that my hands had done 
and the toil I had expended in doing it. And behold, all was vanity and a striving after wind. And there was nothing to be gained under the sun. The view from the peak is that there is nothing to be gained under the sun. The end result, he says in verses 22 and 23. What has a man from all the toil and striving of heart with which he toils beneath the sun? For all his days are full of sorrow and his work is a vexation. Even in the night his heart does not rest. This also is vanity. The same place he ends up. Vexation and sorrow. Just like the path of wisdom did not lead to the good life, but led to vexation and sorrow. So the path of work and pleasure does not lead to the good life, but leads to vexation and sorrow. Why? When he reflects on it again in verses 18 to 23, he comes back to that same pesky problem we saw with wisdom. Death. It does not last. He says, I hated all my toil in which I toil under the sun. Verse 18. Seeing that I must leave it to the man who will come after me. And who knows whether he will be wise or a fool. At the peak, the preacher said, I... I took pleasure in my toil. This was my reward. But then when he thought more about it and he looked out on all that he had done and saw that it was all vanity and striving after wind, he said, I hated my toil. Because I still die. And even though I can build something up that will endure beyond my death, right, we have inheritance and estate plans. And sometimes we might put our hope in, I'm not trying to build a good life for myself. I'm trying to build one for my kids. But the preacher says, once you die, you have no control over it. You have no control over whether your will is going to be followed or even found. You have no control over whether your children are going to use your assets well or squander them. You have no control over whether your estate and all of the stuff in it is going to be sold to people at a garage sale that pick over it. Like vultures. You have no control over that. Everything that you worked for so hard and thought, man, when I get this, I'm going to have the good life, is gone. Destroyed by death. You see, the problem is that death ruins all of our attempts at the good life under the sun. Death ruins anything we would try The preacher says as much when he says in verse 12, I turn to consider wisdom and madness and folly for what can the man who comes after the king do? If he couldn't find it with unlimited wisdom and unlimited wealth, what makes you think you will? That's what the preacher wants us to see. If I couldn't find it, you won't. So why won't won't you take my word for it? It's silly, right? His conclusions are definitive and heartbreaking. Because look what he says in verse 17. Verse 17, he says, I hated life because what is done under the sun was grievous to me. For all is vanity and a striving after wind. When we see the crookedness of creation and we see what is lacking Because of the curse under the sun, a right response is to hate it. 
to hate the devastation brought on by sin and death. To hate that sin turned a garden into a graveyard. To hate that there is no path to gain under the sun. It is right in this way to hate life. Even John picks this up in 1 John. When he tells us, don't love the world or the things in the world. But instead, love God. The problem that we encounter, though, is many of us in the church stop here. We hate life. We despair of finding gain in the sun, like the preacher, which is the right response to what he sees and the reality of death. But we stop there and we say, I'm just going to sit and hate life. And I'm going to wait until Jesus comes back or I die. Right? I'm going, to be, I'm going to be good. I'm going to pray and I'm going to read my Bible and I'm going to wait for the next kingdom. Because this one's so fundamentally broken, I can't fix it. How many of us live like that in the church? Where we have no engagement with the things of this world. Because all of this world is grievous to us. And so we pull back. And we just wait. And the good life doesn't come here. Because it can't. It's just going to come in eternity. Friends that's not what the preacher wants us to do. That's not what God wants us to do. The good life is not only found on the other side of the resurrection. That's what the preacher wants us to see. The call to forsake any hope. In any good in this world and just wait until you die is not the call of the gospel. It's a different call. A call that calls us to live a good life by finding it in the right places. We see hints of this in the preacher's exploration. We see a hint when the preacher finds that wisdom is better than folly. In other words, it does matter whether you choose wisdom or folly. There is a difference that is real and tangible. There is some measure of gain in finding wisdom over folly. It's not arbitrary. We see it also when the preacher says he found pleasure in his toil in verse 10. There is something that happens when we work where we find some enjoyment out of it. Because we were created to be working people. God gave That to Adam and Eve in the garden. And that persists in us. So we see hints that there is something. Here. Beyond vexation and sorrow. That can lead us. To a good life. That's where the preacher goes. In verses 24 to 26. He says this. There is nothing better. For a person. Than that he should eat and drink. And find enjoyment in his toil. This also I saw is from the hand of God. For apart from him, who can eat or who can have enjoyment? For to the one who pleases him, God has given wisdom and knowledge and joy. But to the sinner, he's given the business of gathering and collecting. Only to give it to the one who pleases God. This also is vanity and is striving after wind. In this short section of scripture... We see the word good, the Hebrew word tov, repeated four times. There's nothing better. It's good. 
for a person than they should eat and drink and find enjoyment. This is see good in this life or in his toil. And the one who pleases God or the one who is good before God is the one whom God gives these things to. The preacher wants us to see that there is a good life. There is a good way to live. And he wants us to see that by way of contrast. Think about his explorations. Chapter 1 verse 16 to chapter 2 verse 23. All of his explorations. I had this. I did this. I made this. I went down this path. I tested myself this way. All of the preacher's explorations are self-centered striving after the good life. Trying to make the good life out of the ruins of Eden. It's like the preacher's sitting there with this broken vase and trying to stick it back together and make something beautiful out of it. Notice, though, what he moves to in verse 24 to 26. It's no longer I, 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 me, me, me. But now it's God who gives. There's nothing better for a person than that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. This also I saw is from the hand of God. For who apart from him can eat or who can have enjoyment? God has given wisdom and knowledge and joy to the one that pleases him. Notice all of the shift from The preacher's efforts to create some kind of good life to God who gives good gifts. That's the key that the preacher wants us to see. Is that we cannot make the good life out of the ruins of Eden. But we must receive God's good gifts. And that receiving and enjoying those is the good life that we have been called to. As followers of Christ. God gives. Two different things in this text. In verse 13 of chapter 1. He gives an unhappy business to man. A crooked world. That's lacking. And that cannot be made straight or counted. And then to those who please him. In verse 26 of chapter 2. He gives. Wisdom and knowledge and joy. You can't immediately see the connection between joy and what we've seen so far. But the word joy there is the same word for pleasure that's used all throughout chapter 2. God gives to the one who pleases him wisdom and knowledge, which we try to use for our own ends. And he gives pleasure or joy, which we try to use to make a good life. God gives these things To us, and we please God not by trying to straighten out the crooked world with them. We please God not by crying, trying to create some kind of utopia with them, right? We please God not using His gifts to try to manufacture our own gain, but we please Him by receiving His gifts. As his goodness to us and praising him for those gifts, right? That's what the preacher is calling us to. He's calling us to an everyday enjoyment of God's daily gifts. This is the mindset that Jesus called his disciples to in Matthew 6. When he exhorts them to pray to God 
asking for daily bread, right? What pleases God to feed his hungry kids, right? With daily bread, a daily gift that's not meant to be reserved and made into gain. That's why when God gave the manna in the wilderness and told the people of God not to gather more for tomorrow, and they did, it just rotted and turned maggoty. If we try to take the good gifts that God gives and make our own gain and good life out of them, that life will be full of maggots and will eventually be eaten by maggots. Right? Because death still comes. We can't create a deathless garden. But God calls us to daily receive these good things, to seek his kingdom first, as Jesus says in Matthew 6. Why? Because your father knows all that you need, right? When Jesus is reflecting on this and he's saying, look at the flowers, look at the birds. Not even Solomon in all his glory was arrayed like them. Not even the preacher, as far as he could go up that mountain of the good life, reached the point of the birds and the flowers who receive every day from God food and sunshine and sustenance, daily gifts. And so Jesus says, seek first the kingdom of God, not to build your own kingdom. And then all of these things will be added to you. You will have the good life. You will be cared for in the way you need. Paul says, In Colossians 1, that there is a kind of life that we can walk that is worthy of pleasing God. It says Colossians 1, verse 9, he's talking about the way he's praying for the Colossian people. The way he aspires for them to live should be the way we aspire to live as well. He says this, from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you. Praying this, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. Be wise. It is better than being foolish. Right? But to what end? He says this, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him. To walk in a way that pleases him. Being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might. For all endurance and patience with joy. Giving thanks to the Father. Who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness. And transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. In whom we have redemption. The forgiveness of sins. Walking in a way that is pleasing to the Lord is receiving his good daily gifts as gifts and giving thanks to him and putting our hope for living a good life that is not destroyed by death in the one who destroys death, in the one who conquers death. We have been transferred into the kingdom of his beloved son through the blood of Jesus. Jesus who himself died and conquered death, who took away the sting of death, That's where our true hope is to walk in a manner that is pleasing to the Lord. Ecclesiastes, the preacher here, shows us that the bad news is that gain cannot be found under the sun. That the good life does not come 
from the paths we have before us. That what is crooked cannot be made straight and what is lacking cannot be counted. But he tells us the good news too. That we've been given something better in Christ Jesus. That we've been given gifts that we receive as gifts. Daily mercies and eternal mercies that reconcile us to God. So friends, the path to the good life is walking in those and enjoying them as good gifts. Let's pray. Precious Father, I pray that as we reflect on these things, as we see what you've shown us through the life of the preacher, that our hearts would be stirred to receive with glad and grateful hearts the daily gifts that you have given, the daily gifts of of food and drink and a job to do, the daily gifts of walking in dependence on you. All of these would be received with joy by our hearts. Lord, we are still prone to wonder. We are still tempted to think, maybe we'll do better than the preacher. God, would you help us not pursue that path? And when we come to our senses, if we are pursuing that path, would you guide us back into enjoying you day by day? We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.